What was the greatest contribution that John Paul II made to the Church and to the world during his 27 years as Pope? That's a difficult question to answer because our former Holy Father did many incredible and noteworthy things as the successor of St. Peter. If you threw that question out to a number of people, some might answer it by focusing on all that John Paul did to bring down the Iron Curtain and put an end to Soviet Communism in Eastern Europe. Others might focus on his many travels. He made, as some of us know, over 100 trips to foreign countries during his pontificate, taking the gospel message to the world in a way that no other pope had done before him. Others might say that his greatest contribution was in his outreach to young people. As some of us might remember, it was his idea to call young people from all over the world to Rome in 1984 for what he called a World Youth Day. What we might not remember about that is there were some people who were saying, he's crazy. He's inviting teenagers and young adults. He's a 60-year-old guy, more than 60 years of age. He's going to talk to them about holy stuff, Jesus Christ, religion, etc. Who'll come? Well, 300,000 showed up that first year. And then in the Philippines, 11 years later, 5 million young people came to hear the same man when he was in his 70s. Apparently, John Paul II did not know the meaning of the expression, the generation gap. Still others might say that his greatest contribution was in the area of ecumenism and interreligious dialogue. After all, our former Holy Father did quite a bit to heal the thousand-year-old division between Catholics and the Orthodox, and the 500-year division between Catholics and Protestants. And he did a great deal to establish good relations with the leaders of Islam and other non-Christian faiths. But many of those who followed the career of John Paul II most closely and who studied his teachings most intently would say that his most significant contribution was not any of the four I just mentioned, as great as they all were. They would say that his most important contribution was, without question, his theology of the body. Now I can tell by the silence in the church, this is the first time some of you have ever heard that expression, the theology of the body. If that's the case, don't feel too bad, because you're not alone. And yet the irony is this might just be the subject that dominates conversations about John Paul II in future generations. This may prove to be, as some experts have said, the most enduring aspect of his incredible legacy.
And that's saying a lot because his legacy is pretty great. If you were in Rome sometime between September of 1979 and November of 1984, and if you were there and attended a general audience on a Wednesday with the Holy Father, you have heard at least something about the theology of the body, although you might not be aware of it, or you might not realize it. That's because the Holy Father shared his thoughts on this subject during the 129 talks he gave at his Wednesday audiences over that five-year period. In these talks, which incidentally begin with a reflection on the gospel passage we just heard, which is why I'm talking about it this morning. In these talks, John Paul II reiterates all the traditional teachings of the Church on marriage and human sexuality. So there are no surprises there. But he does it in a unique way. A very unique way. For example, concerning sins of the flesh, instead of simply saying, these acts are wrong because they violate the Ten Commandments and the natural law, as many before him had done, John Paul II goes one step further. And he says, yes, these acts are wrong because they do violate the Ten Commandments and the natural law. But at a deeper level, they also contradict the meaning of our bodies as created by God. That's a unique approach. In his Theology of the Body, the Holy Father approaches moral issues in the same way that Jesus does in this scene that we just heard, in this text from Mark chapter 10. He goes back to the beginning, to God and his creative intent. Notice in this text, the Pharisees want to discuss the morality of divorce by referring exclusively to the law of Moses in the Old Testament. And how does Jesus respond to that? He answers them, in effect, by saying, boys, that's the wrong way to deal with the issue. If you want to understand whether divorce is morally good or not, You've got to go back further than the time of Moses. You've got to go back to creation. To the time when our first parents were made in God's image and likeness. Once you understand the Lord's intention in creating men and women at the very beginning of human history, before the fall, once you understand that, then you'll know the truth about marriage and divorce. At that point, he quotes a passage from Genesis 2, which was part of the text we heard in our second, in our first reading today. God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, no human being must separate. For Jesus and for John Paul II, the self-giving of a husband and wife to one another in marriage 
expressed, incidentally, most profoundly in the marital act, is something holy. It is something good. It is something of God. It's part of the Lord's creative intent. So much for the idea that the church thinks sex is dirty. The church thinks sex within marriage is holy. It's the world that thinks sex is dirty. That's why they send you those magazines in those brown wrappers. That's the truth. In fact, in a very real way, the self-giving of a husband and wife to one another in marriage, according to John Paul II, mirrors, reflects the divine self-giving that is present in the inner life of the Blessed Trinity. It reflects the love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Spirit, the Spirit for the Father. So, of course, divorce isn't possible. Is it possible for the Father to divorce himself from the Son in the Blessed Trinity? Or the Son from the Spirit? Or the Spirit from the Father? Of course not. That bond of love is too intimate and too strong. Well, if it's not possible for the three persons of the Triune God to divorce themselves from one another, how is it possible for a marriage bond to be broken? If that bond is supposed to reflect the inner life, the inner love of the persons in the Blessed Trinity. Now, I know I have to make one qualification here. I know this is extremely important. Obviously, here I am referring to a valid sacramental marriage. The fact is, not every wedding ceremony causes a true sacramental bond to form between the couple. The church recognizes that. Sometimes there's a problem, a defect, present at the beginning, which unfortunately does not become apparent until long after the couple has exchanged their vows. Unfortunately, I'm sure there are some people here in this congregation who know this by experience. In those cases, Separation is acceptable, and an annulment is possible. But the main point here is that John Paul II and Jesus both go back to the beginning in order to unfold the meaning of marriage. And John Paul does that same thing throughout his Theology of the Body talks in dealing with dozens of other important questions and issues. In the mind of our former Holy Father, for example, if you want to know who you are as a human person, if you want to know the meaning of life, if you want to understand the sacraments and the nature of the church, if you want to understand moral issues like divorce, and if you want some legitimate insights on what heaven is like, you have to go back to the beginning when God made the bodies, hear that, the bodies of our first parents. There, the Holy Father says, believe it or not, you will begin to discover the truth about all these other things. This is why the theology of the body is so radical. 
and why some think it will be the greatest aspect of John Paul's legacy. Consider, for instance, the meaning of life, a, a rather important issue. You got to know why you're here on this earth, right? In the beginning, we are told that God made us male and female. He made our bodies different. I'm sure you've already noticed that. Well, that difference, John Paul would say, is not an accident. It's by design. And it's extremely significant. It means something very important that points us to the true meaning of life. He would say the difference we experience in our bodies as male and female is a sign of the fact that we need others. It's a sign of the fact that we need community. No man is an island, so to speak. And so our bodies have a nuptial meaning whereby we are called to give of ourselves to God and to others in love and in service. As the Holy Father put it in one of his talks, the human body includes, right from the beginning, the capacity of expressing love. That love in which the person becomes a gift. You didn't know that, did you? You are a gift. You're supposed to be. And by means of this gift, fulfills the meaning of his being and existence. So you want to know why there are so many lonely people in the world right now? So many miserable souls walking on planet Earth. Miserable souls who have a lot of stuff. They're miserable because they don't know this truth. They don't know the meaning of their own bodies. They think, and the world feeds into this idea, they think that their bodies are designed primarily for receiving, taking, getting. They don't realize that their primary reason for being on this earth is to give. Consequently, they are miserable in their selfishness and in their hedonism. They think the meaning of life is about getting, possessing, accumulating. Who can die with the most stuff? They don't realize that the real meaning of life is about the giving of ourselves to others. That's where we find fulfillment. Let me close by saying this. I highly encourage you to learn more about the theology of the body. Understanding this aspect of John Paul II's thought is crucial. It can bring blessings, a beautiful perspective on life. It can bring peace and joy. Now, you might not want to sit down and read all 129 talks of the Holy Father. In fact, here they are. It's a rather lengthy volume, 400 or so pages. The talks weren't long when, when he gave them, but 129 of them make for a big book. But there are commentaries available out there which explain the essentials of the Pope's teaching in a very simple way. There are also some great talks you can purchase on CD by people like Christopher West and other recognized experts on the subject. John Broder tells me that some of these materials will be available in our new parish library when it's completed. 
The basic message of John Paul II in all this is simple and clear. He says to us, know your body. Really know your body and what it means. It's ultimately the best thing you can do for your body and for your soul.